usually how I like to start these conversations is, is really about an individual's journey and the, the stuff they, when I talk to people, they're sort of at a period in their life where uh, they're building something pretty amazing, right? It's going to take a lot of time, a lot of energy, uh, a lot of money, a lot of drive, a lot of effort, a lot of mental bandwidth. But before Cope Notes, like, like take us back to, to the journey, good and bad, right? Of sort of just your, just your life, what led up to you um, starting Cope Notes in general? Everything. <laughs> There's not a component. It's funny, whenever I have conversations around mental health, people will always ask me about the parts of my life that have intersected with mental health. And mm. my challenge to them is like, okay, what part of your life does not intersect with your mental health? Right. So the the brief overview is, and I'm leaving out tons and tons of context and details, but basically I grew up with a lot of different mental health issues. Like I was self-harming as a toddler. I was hallucinating in grade school. I was in an abusive household, so that certainly didn't help. And I started formal treatment and I was formally diagnosed in high school. And if you want to hear more about a little bit of the background of the story, I encourage listeners to watch my TED Talk. There's lots more information in there. But basically, I never had a normal day of my entire life, whether I was on tour with my band and freaking out about germs being on money or a stage, right. or whether I was at home trying to get a job, but I had difficulty making eye contact and shaking people's hands because of OCD, or I was hallucinating someone else in the job interview with me. I mean, my life has been so difficult to describe that when people ask what led to Cope Notes or what has your journey been like, I'm just like, you wouldn't even believe me if I told you, you know? Is there some stuff you can share that that are, are, are a bit of defining moments? And, and I know that uh, a lot of, th there's all these little defining moments, but there's stuff in my life where I had those deep, dark moments and I can vividly remember them, you know, or, or not dark moments, but just times where I, I knew I had to do something different, right? Where you knew you had to change. And like you said, you mentioned in your TED Talk, recommended, it's amazing to watch. You, you say that you have to kind of start and, and it's not going to happen in two, three days, right? Two, three weeks, right? It's going to take consistency, right? And, and understanding that today's the day I need to start to do something different. W was there days or times where you said, okay, I know something's awry here. Like I need to make some type of change, even though I don't know what it is yet, but I need to start to go down a path of trying to discover what, what I need to start doing better. So I'm not a huge believer in like individual pivotal moments. I mean, I know that they occur, but my life hasn't really had a lot of them. It's been a lot of little ones, but I do know that there is an instance that comes to mind where I was with my girlfriend at the time and I was dropping her off at her car. I guess we'd gone on a date or something mm -hmm. and we were saying goodnight and then she starts crying and I was like, wait, what is happening? And we had been dating for a while. So I'm like, dang, I feel like I would have known if something was wrong. So I was like, why the heck are you crying? Did I do something? Or, you know, we'd been together all night and everything has right. been fine. And then she just said, well, it's scary saying goodnight to you because I never know if you're going to be alive the next day. Mm -hmm. And that's really emotionally draining for me. And it's scary. And I thought my gut reaction was like, it's scary for you. Give me a break. Like I'm the one who's going through it. And then once I really simmered on it and thought about it, I realized that my behavior was hurting the mm -hmm. pretty much the only person who was trying to help me. And sometimes when you feel a pain that's super, super deep, you for, like the world around you melts away. Like, you know, the weather doesn't matter and the news doesn't matter and your friends don't matter. And you're just so locked inside of your own head and 
and feeling such a deep pain that you forget that the world out there exists and that you're a part of it. And when I realized that my behavior was hurting my only teammate, I was like, oh, heck no. Mm -hmm. Like I can hurt myself all day long and somehow justify it illogically because of the headspace I was in, but I couldn't justify that hurting somebody I loved. I think that's really well said. I think a lot of times we could, we can absolutely think of ourselves and the turmoil we face or or just internally uh, our feelings that it affects us. But, you know, just personal experience, you know, when I went through stuff, like that is the one thing that prevented me from doing, you know, bad things uh, to myself was, you know, thinking of a person in my life, I was like, how would this affect them? Right? It was, it was a moment of clarity for me where your life, no matter who we are, like you, like you said, you always have like teammates, right? So there's some, there's somebody around you or people around you that are gonna, that's gonna affect their life too, right? So Mm -hmm. understanding maybe like the selfishness in that is really weird, right? Like you kind of don't think of it that way. It, It can be a bit selfish to think that you're the only one you know, in pain a little bit sometimes, right? I mean, everybody sort of deals with something, but like, like she, she mentioned like that affects her. Like, think about it. that's crazy, man. That that's the first time she told you that. Like, how many times did she not express that to you where she went mm-hmm. to bed feeling that way? Anyway, to you mentioned the the sort of music side of things, right? And uh, I think I want to touch on that a little bit because I think music is sort of this this individual therapy that that can happen. Right. And I just wanted to understand maybe your relationship with music and maybe how how has that affected perhaps your mental health throughout the years? Music was my only friend for a long time. So I had, like I said, I had behavior issues my entire life. And when I would, I had had a really bad temper, really, really bad anger issues, breaking stuff and screaming and punching holes through walls and just super aggro. And music always calmed me down. There was never Mm -hmm. a single time in my life where I got heated and my temper flared and stuff. And then music didn't help. It Mm. was the 100% success rate go-to coping mechanism. So when I, when I really felt myself like, wow, I'm about to fly off the handle. I'm about to lose my temper. I'm about to make a whole scene. I would grab my headphones or I would go in my room and sit down with my guitar for a minute. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in like 60 seconds, I would become, I'd go from like Hulk to Bruce Banner. (laughs) And I just, I can't explain how transformative that has been for me and what, what really means a lot to me about music and why I was so dedicated and still am very dedicated to creating music for other people to enjoy and experience is music has always been there for me always. If I'm going through something at 3 a.m. or on a holiday or I'm going through something 43 days in a row consecutively, music is never like, oh, leave me alone, dude. Or like, you already listened to the song. Pick a different song. Or like, can't you just cope with it on your own? Like music has been constantly available and supportive. And I, my, my hope in creating Coke Notes was to create something like that. But even before Coke Notes, my goal through music was like, how do I make a song that can be there for somebody in all of the ways that music has been there for me. Do you find there's a difference between listening and writing? Do you think there's a there's a certain, or, or does it all feel the same? Like it, the same feeling is, is listening, you know, putting on your headphones, listening to something or sitting down and actually like writing something and creating music. Do, do you think there's a difference in either one that they it affected you different at all? Oh yeah. 
and I'll say this, my first thing that popped into my head when you asked that was to to create music, your mind has to be crystal clear. Mm, great point. And to listen to music, your mind can be a chaotic monster. Like, you know, I've yeah, never, if, if I sit down when I'm about to fly off the handle, I'm, I can't fully be creative because I'm standing in my own way. But if, and especially when I was younger, like fortunately I haven't dealt with, I haven't had anger become an issue in my life in the past, I don't know, five years or so. I've been a lot better because of course therapy, working through some anger management stuff. So fortunately I'm not of that temperament, but I specifically remember when I was going through that, I would sit down and try to write something and I was so upset that my brain couldn't get around itself. And that's when I would listen. I would say, wow, if I can't think straight, then I'll put on music and so much of my mental acuity will focus on listening to it that everything else will melt away. Interesting. It's I kind of want to try to segue it into Cope Notes because, you know, Cope Notes at its core is words right? And, and I'm a big fan of music and I've written music before and you have a ton of ink and, and my ink is actually all words, right? I, I have this sort of fascination with words. It's simplicity, but it also the, the impact that it has. So in talking about Coat Notes, let's just talk a little bit about, you know, what it is, right? And, and from just a, a simple mission standpoint, like what, what is the purpose of it and what does it do? So Cope Notes, uses daily text messages to improve mental and emotional health. So if you think about it, we are trying to be that that interruption to a negative thought pattern. We're trying to train your brain to think in healthier thought patterns by delivering these texts that sort of, you know, I, I used to describe it as a train. So picture, you know how people will say thought train? like mm -hmm. a negative thought sure. train. I picture cope notes as like a guaranteed rock in that train's path. Maybe it's just a pebble or something on the train track. And we guarantee that we will slow that train down over time enough to derail it. And most people get stuck in a negative thought pattern and it doesn't stop for days or weeks or months on mm -hmm. end. And we said, we never want anyone to go a full 24 hours without a guaranteed interruption to that negative thought pattern when you were first thinking about doing it right or doing something what were the first steps you took right i mean you're you're sort of a an artist right a musician like how do you go from that to like creating a text messaging company right did you have a friend that was a coder or developer and they you went to them and say hey i want to make this how do i do that like what were some of the first steps of actually like creating the company and the technology for it so what people need to know about me and anyone from the hardcore or punk or metal community knows that like DIY is a cornerstone. Yeah. So I was designing our, you know, our t-shirt designs. I was designing our album covers. I was writing the lyrics. I was writing the music. I was like coming up with new ways to transition between songs. I mean, even early on, I was booking our own shows. So all of that translated into business so much so that I didn't even know that Cope Notes was a startup until a full year in <laughs> when somebody else read about us in the newspaper, a local accelerator and said, Hey, we run a tech startup accelerator. And I was like, I literally don't even know what any of those three words mean <laughs> because I, here's what I did. I'm not from tech. I'm not from the business world. I mean, you got to think I, I lived in a van for 12 years playing shows every day in a different city. And I'm 
none of these you think we're all sitting around at a cannibal corpse show talking about back-end right. coding right right like it was also foreign to me so I was doing peer support and mental health advocacy for years. And all I thought was, man, the way that we do peer support doesn't scale. There's no way, like peer support is most totally. of the time one-on-one -on -one one -on -one, yeah. or yeah. with a group. So at max, you have, you have a very low ceiling of how many people you can serve. So I was like, you know, God forbid a million people need peer support one day. What are you going to do? Hire a hundred thousand peer support group leaders? Or what? Like, what's your plan? So the, the original thing that I did, you asked how I got started. This is embarrassing, but it's true. I didn't think anything about business at all. So what I did was I, I licensed SMS marketing software with my own money and then asked for people's phone numbers and put them in manually mm -hmm. to this SMS marketing software. And then I wrote a new text like every day or every other day. It wasn't even daily at that point. And then I would pick an arbitrary time to send the text. And then I would send like one mass text to the entire list. Mm -hmm. And I was doing that manually. So I was making data entry errors like Crazy. 20 times a day. <laughs> and it was actually, I just met with a um, someone who I hope becomes a client. Uh, they run a team of about five or 600 different employees. And they were looking at Coke notes for employee health. And yeah, the great. guy... I'm so glad he said this. He goes, I'm not going to lie, Johnny. When you launched Cope Notes, I tried it in like the first couple of weeks. And he was like, it sucked. <laughs> he said it right to my face. And he's like, I'm so glad that you've made so many changes because if it was still what it was a couple of years ago, there's no way I would touch it. So it really was that bad, you guys. And what did he what did he say were the was his issues right and, and like was it the grammar like was it just spelling like was it the time oh no bad? no not the grammar so my background is in creative and i did copywriting for years oh so, so, it's, so it's great yeah so that part was good that yeah. part was fine but i mean the i'm sure the sign up process and the mm -hmm. delivery and there were gotcha. no options it's like and there was no education too it's like we're just going to send you text messages that help you and there were like no <laughs> I mean, it was just, have you ever seen a kid, you know, a toddler, like hand a painting to his mom and be like, it's an elephant. And she's like, kind of, you know, that's how the MVP of our product was before I even knew what MVP stood for. I, I love the idea of, of B2B because uh, I think, uh, again, it goes to the, the scale that we're talking about, right? Because it seems like Cope Notes was created for individuals, right? For individuals to to sort of sign up. At what point did B2B come into play, right? Like companies asking to use this? Because I actually think that's an unbelievable idea. I think it's a great idea for companies to get involved. Was was somebody, yeah, I, was that intentional at all? Or somebody came out of the blue and say, hey, I want to do this for my company. I'm like scoffing at your suggestion that it was intentional. I had, <laughs> I had literally no clue what I was doing. Literally, all I did was I set out to make a positive impact in people's lives. That's it. I had no, I genuinely had like no plans, but as word traveled and as some subscribers told other subscribers that it existed, um, eventually one of those subscribers was responsible for the foster care system in Iowa. And they said, Hey, you know, are you willing to do a contract with us to support a couple hundred kids? And I was like, I don't even know how I would do that. And then a couple of days later, I got a request from a treatment center here in Florida. And they said, hey, you know, we want to build this into our alumni program. So as people graduate out of 
treatment and they're in recovery, they can receive these texts as like an aftercare effort. And I was like, okay, well, I don't even know how to do that. And then the real, <laughs> the real thing that made me kind of switch gears. And actually, this is why I quit my job to, to pursue Cope Notes full-time. One of the people who tried Cope Notes originally in the first, you know, like six months was this woman who was the head of the social and emotional learning department, I guess, of the Dallas school district, which is like, I think mm-hmm. it's the largest school yeah, district it's gotta be huge. in the country or second largest or something. It's like 157,000 kids. And she was like, hey, would you consider contracting with a school district? And I said, well, I mean, that'd be great, but you're talking, you know, at, at cost, you're talking the school district paying like 13 million bucks a year or whatever it was, 18 million bucks a year to provide this to students. And she was like, I know. <laughs> and I said, okie dokie, I quit my job. <laughs> like, I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I can to make this work. So originally I had no plans of going enterprise, but we even had like a fortune company reach out to use it for wellness before we advertised it for wellness for large groups or enterprise at all. And I asked the woman, like, what, how the heck did you find out about this? And what made you want to use it for the team? And she said, well, I was at Uh, my cousin's wedding and someone received a text message, someone in the wedding party from Cope Notes and read it out loud. And then we all talked about it. And then she was like the head of benefits for this fortune company. And I was like, oh my Lord, everyone's a person. And I made this for people. So fortunately, some of those people have authority over large groups. So that's interesting because you go from sort of manually doing stuff, right? To, To not knowing with like, like a tech accelerator is, but did you go that path as you were gaining? I mean, obviously you have to build a team, right? At a certain point, like, did you go like the accelerator route to kind of get some mentorship and to get a team together? Or did you just, you know, poke people that you thought would be really good and started to build a team? I didn't do crap. I was (laughs) like, you know, it's funny at a local accelerator that one that met with me was like, Hey, you should join up. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't even know half the stuff you guys are talking about. I don't know if we're a good fit. So I was resistant to it for a while. Mm-hmm. Like we, of course, by now we've done an incubator and we're in an accelerator now. Um, but at the time, I mean, I feel like we're doing these programs way too late, like late pass for sure. Mm-hmm. But the only way that we were able to scale at all was um this guy that I guess I had met in college briefly. He said that he had seen me perform improv at a coffee shop (laughs) at UCF in like 2011 or something. And he reached out to me and he's like, hey, I read about you guys in the newspaper and I'm like a tech person. I just want to take a look at your security and backend and see Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if there's anything I can do to help. And I literally was like, uh, I got it covered, dude. I'm... (laughs) I'm borrowing SMS software and typing everything manually. Like, oh, I'm figuring it out. And he was like, that sounds terrible. Like, (laughs) you need to not do that anymore. So it was through his persistence that I allowed him to look at some of what we're doing. He's like, this sucks and this can be so much better. So he eventually started working with me on a project here and a project there. And then now he's our full-time CTO. So it's not like I said, I need to find someone who can help us scale. It took someone else reaching out and going like, uh, this is going to break like really soon if you don't change everything. That's great. No, I mean, that that's, but still, I mean, it takes, it takes you to kind of, to, to let somebody into the ecosystem, right? To let somebody look at your baby under the hood, right? And, and be able to take some criticism, right? Because it's just like, you have no, 
idea like what automation is possible right like what yeah these back-end and databases was, can do i mean your life probably had to change your mental well-being probably improved a lot when he came on board bro so let me just say this <laughs> so right before this conversation he slacked me i'll read it he said uh we've been working on a project uh that he just completed last night and he tested it this morning and pushed it live and he said we can schedule fifty thousand texts per minute 50,000 texts per minute can be scheduled. And keep in mind, these texts are scheduled using artificial randomization, all these mm -hmm, algorithms mm -hmm. and scripts that we wrote. Bro, can you go back in time, dude, <laughs> and picture me and some state government is like, hey, we want we want to add 50,000 new users. I would die. Freak. What is your, What is your plan for manual data entry and scheduling? Like the fact that we built scripts that can schedule 50,000 texts in a minute. I mean, do the math. How many users can we support in a day if we can schedule 50,000 in a minute all through different time zones? That's a bunch more than I could do. My fingers would fall off typing all that in. I wanted to, I wanted to chat a little bit about the science, because I think it, it's really interesting because like you said, you kind of, you came into all kind of different worlds, a, a little green, right? But you just learn, right? Like, like, I think it's, it's, it's so great when individuals can just learn, right? And just dig deep into a sector they, they don't have any idea of before. But what are some of like, maybe like the scientific discoveries about like psychology, right? And about maybe doing randomized texts at a time. So a person can't predict when it's going to, you know, come on their phone a day. Like what, what are some of the things that were really inspiring or interesting to you from like a, a data standpoint that science really taught you about like psychology and improving mental health? So that's what I, I bet people have been listening to this for a half hour and they go like, how the heck did this guy accomplish anything? <laughs> um, so I'm glad we're finally touching on the psychology stuff because I went to UCF for psychology. I've been doing mental health support and advocacy and, and all of this. I've been in the mental health world for, for over a decade, like professionally. So when people, I can just picture people listening to this and they're like, he doesn't know anything. It's like, no, I do. I just don't know tech stuff. Right, so my whole right. background was everything psychology based. I was really interested in abnormal psychology, of course, because of my diagnoses. I was really interested in neuroscience and my plan was to become a clinician. So don't get distracted by the tattoos. I was going to mm -hmm. be the lab coat guy. Um, <laughs> and the components of cope notes that exist today in terms of strategy, like our approach to mental health is kind of rooted in a few things. So on one hand, we do health education. So we are like normalizing help-seeking behaviors. We are reducing stigma and we are preventing crises. We are intervening. This is an interventional and prevention, preventative mm -hmm. resource. So a lot of it is thinking about like, how do we arm the person with all of the tools they will need to face days that are great and days that suck. But the other half of it is the neuroscience that you're talking about. And dude, you would be shocked how much amazing information there is about the brain that we don't talk about regularly. Like habituation is something that we experience constantly. We never talk about it. So habituation is where, and you know this because you watch the TED Talk, it's where your brain tunes something out because it figures that it's not important. It thinks, well, I already processed this information, so I don't have to relay it to your conscious mind. I can just kind of kick it to the side. Mm -hmm. So if we, you know, anyone who has set an alarm for like 2 p.m. every day that says be grateful, after a couple of days, you start ignoring that alarm, not on purpose, 
but because your brain succumbed to habituation. And we use artificial randomization to send texts at random times and no two people ever get the same text at the same time. So it's completely randomized and differentiated and unique from user to user. And the way that we built this strategy wise was rooted in the psychological principles that we understand about how the brain works. So I might not have done the tech side of things like coding stuff and making it work that way, mm -hmm. but I was the person who sat down in a meeting with a tech person and said, well, here's what the brain does. How do right. we fight that? So when you, when you talk about like, actually, I think go back to your, you know, you, you, it's kind of weird. You have like this, this deep background in, in psychology, but also the copywriting part, it, it kind of both blended into this cope notes gem that, that you have created. But I, I guess the messages that I kind of want to talk about and like, how do those get created? Right? Like, is it, scientist is it you is it you know algorithms telling like putting words together like how does this you know mass amount of word production and and get even produced well if it were algorithms putting words together i guarantee <laughs> they would not be helpful messages <laughs> i'm like i'm really big on just not sacrificing the human element of mental health like you know if this was if we were selling socks or cupcakes or something, mm -hmm, I wouldn't right. really care if a robot was handling it. But because it's something as uh, personal and complex as mental health, we took a very, very pointed approach to content, which is basically this. Every text is written by a peer with lived experience. So if you guys are familiar with peer support or even AA is a peer support based mm -hmm. model. Um, so all of the texts are written by people who have lived through it, hardship, loss, illness, trauma, whatever it is, they are, they are writing from personal experience. And then um, because we didn't want to leave the folks with degrees on their wall out, of the picture, we have a clinical oversight panel. And these are the folks that review these texts to make sure that they are based on proven psychological principles, they will elicit the desired response, and that they are, you know, trauma informed and inclusive of diversity. So a lot of mental health resources that I've used in the past that I wasn't happy with were had a clinical base and then peer oversight. And we were like, screw that. We want to flip it so that it feels mm -hmm. human and there's mm -hmm. empathy baked into everything we do. When a, when a user signs up, does it do the messages change based on what a person went through? Like, I'm gonna try to word this as best I can, but like, you know, if a you know if a mother deals with like a loss of a child, right? Do, does their brain want something different than a person who deals with alcoholism? Does it matter the trauma or issue that a person goes through? Do they give you that information so you can then feed their brain appropriate like dialogue? So a couple thoughts on this. So originally, of course, that was part of my roadmap was like, I want to make things as pointed and specific and customized as possible. But we started doing research with USF Health and we kind of realized that if you think of mental health services on a spectrum, we are on the comprehensive preventative wellness side. And then on the other side of that spectrum, you, you can picture like inpatient treatment or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what I would say is if you are working out for general wellness, for preventative wellness, if you're doing calisthenics and you're lifting weights, you're playing basketball, you're stretching, all of that stuff, 
you are on the preventative general wellness side where we are. If you, like when I broke my elbow, I had to go to a physical therapist and I literally would sit with her for an hour and she would just help me bend my arm back and forth. That's it. (laughs) Just focusing on my elbow. So that is the other end of the spectrum. That's treatment. So much like bending your elbow back and forth isn't good for general wellness. Obviously, I couldn't lift weights with a broken elbow on the treatment end. So Cope Notes' focus is how do we draft content that is applicable across demographic? Mm -hmm. Because the whole reason why we even had to take this into consideration is adoption. So I know that if I were going to sign up for a mental health resource and then a freaking pop like questionnaire populates and it's like, what have you been through? Right. Right. You know, how Asking me all this information to be like, screw this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what we decided to do was make the onboarding process for an individual as painless as possible and then draft the type of content that their brain could stretch to fit their own personal experience. Because you got to think about this, you know, imagine if I have an iron deficiency and I go, well, I don't need to drink water. I just need iron. And it's like, no, dude, you definitely still need water. Cope Notes is that water. So we are not going to be the perfect specialized, you know, if you need treatment, go get treatment. Sure. Cope Notes can be a great supplement to someone in treatment, but we have tons of people living without a mental health diagnosis who also use Cope Notes because everyone needs to drink water, you know? The one thing in the in the TED Talk that I thought was really interesting was was sort of your your experience with trying to have other people improve you, right? Like I'm going to read this book and that's going to change my life, right? Or, or listen to this podcast or audio book or, or go to this therapist or, or whatever it may be. You kind of said that, well, it, it kind of starts with, with you, right? Like nobody else is, is going to sort of change your life from an outside point of view. And, and I guess I, I want to say that into like the future of, whether it's peer-to-peer, um, whether it's just innovation within the mental health space in general, I guess throughout your history of being in this world, what, what have you seen that maybe doesn't work and maybe that you would steer people away from, right? Just to say, you don't need to say mistakes that I made, uh, you know, going through a path of recovery or, or just a path of, of trying to, to get well mentally. Is there things you would tell people not to do and then tell people maybe what to do that that is more beneficial? I'm trying to be careful about my response here because imagine if someone is like, you know, what should I eat and what shouldn't I eat? And I'm like, well, mushrooms are disgusting. <laughs> so don't eat mushrooms. It's like right. clearly an opinion, right? Right, right, um, right, right. So I'm trying to make my answer a little less about the individual approach and more about how it feels to engage with that approach. So two things come to mind. The first thing is if you're trying something and hoping that it helps you and three weeks in, it's not making a difference, don't stop yet. Mm -hmm. Like my window is three months. I give something 90 days to see if it will make a positive impact on my life. Because sometimes three weeks, I mean, how much progress are you really going to see in three weeks of going to the gym? Yeah. Like you have to stick, you can't quit that early. You ha- Of course, you're not seeing any immediate differences because this stuff takes a while. So I would say don't quit too soon, but also say this, don't stick with something. You know, let's say you're nine months into going to the gym, uh, hypothetically, you know, metaphorically, sure. you spend nine months in a gym and you're not seeing progress. Hey, dude, 
you're freaking working out wrong <laughs> yeah. or you're eating wrong or so like, obviously there's a problem. So I think it has less to do with your individual approach and more about your mentality. If you if you only do something for a little bit and you don't see progress, stick with it for longer. But if you've been with something for a while and you feel like you're supposed to keep doing it because that's something you've traditionally associated with getting healthier, if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. Like you can't force something to fill that gap. So just keep an eye on the timeline, like how much is too little time that you've tried something and how much time is too long. But at the same time, as long as you stay on the right side of whose responsibility your progress is, I genuinely believe that you will progress. As long as you know that, you know, the gym is a place. It's not going to do anything for you. It's a location. Mm. It's like objective. Right. It is what you choose to do inside of that gym that makes a difference. So don't think that the gym is going to fix you. It's you, you are doing the hard work. So you can try the gym or you try Taekwondo or you try tennis, you know, mix it up. And obviously I'm using physical health years an analogy, but just understand that you can't say tennis saved my life. No, it didn't. You know, like I, I'm tempted to say music saved my life because mm -hmm. I feel weird about taking credit for my own progress. I want to pawn it off, but that's because I always wanted my own health to be someone else's responsibility. <laughs> this next next question, I, I'm going to try to ask delicately because I don't want it to, to come off like just wrong, like the way I don't want it to come off. But I, I'm always interested when people, like when people really are creating something that really affects people's lives, right? Are really going to change the trajectory of, society right i always i always wonder is that i i one one let me say I, i'm glad you made this a business right but was there, was there ever a thought of doing coke notes as a nonprofit? because i think sometimes when people are creating something that will impact people's lives they think it has to be sort of a nonprofit, right that it can't be a business that it can't make money and be sustainable um so usually goes a nonprofit route and it might fail just because you need to keep sort of getting donations and there's this whole sort of thing around nonprofit, and you might have seen it through nonprofit sort of, you know, mental wellness, quote unquote, sort of nonprofits. Maybe they do great work, maybe they don't do. Like, there's just a lot of different variables that go into a nonprofit being successful. So, what was your thought? Was there ever thoughts of going that route in the beginning at all, or was it always going to be a business model? That's a great question, and I'm glad we're talking about this. So, people who don't know me don't know that I. I've been volunteering. I'm a lifelong volunteer. So I was volunteering as a kid. I had to get volunteer hours for high school, which is where I really caught the bug. When I was a kid, I maybe didn't have the best attitude about it. But then slowly I was like, holy crap, you can use your time to help people. So I was literally a full-time volunteer. Like, I don't know if people know this, but when you tour, you don't get paid as a musician. Like I was getting paid five, 10 bucks a day for food. And I've toured for 12, 13 years. You're talking two months at a time on tour, living in a van, brushing your teeth in gas station backroom, bathrooms, changing in parking lots, full-time volunteer. You're spent, you're staying up, you're, you're working 20 hours a day, driving Crazy. 13 hours to the next venue. And then I would get home and I'd volunteer speak with NAMI. I do peer support. And then I started Not A Therapist, which was a digital peer support platform that was nonprofit. It was donation-based and everyone gave $0. So I looked at my trajectory and I said, wow, let's see. I have been volunteering in the mental health space for, you know, a decade. And I have never once made a living wage in my entire life. 
I've never once made above $30,000 in a single year ever. Great. It was like freelance project here, freelance project. They're working 80, 90, a hundred hours a week. And then I look at the idea for Cope Notes and I think like an absolute idiot, I go, I'll make it a nonprofit. <laughs> and so here's what I do, my friend. I meet with a nonprofit lawyer to start setting up Cope Notes as a nonprofit. And we start going through paperwork and talking about, you know, well, you're going to need a board and you're going to have to submit minutes and the IRS needs this. Yep. And I was sort of explaining the idea. And because I had done so much volunteering on so many nonprofit boards, I was going around and asking a lot of the CEOs of nonprofits that I'd worked with, like, what's your experience and what do you think? And dude, every single person, keep in mind, I had already started the paperwork to right. make Coconuts a nonprofit. And every single nonprofit executive that I met with said, you, you should not make this a nonprofit. And I asked why, and they said, well, two, two primary reasons. Number one, if you are changing the content every day, if you're changing the delivery, if you're changing the strategy, do you realize how long it takes to make a strategic change in a nonprofit? Mm, great it point. can take months upon months. And you know, for a nonprofit that like throws one event a year, that's fine. They have months and months, but if you are contacting people every day and you realize you need to make a change, you need to make it today so that tomorrow it's fixed. You can't wait six months to solve a problem. Right. And they also said, but I'm not sure how many people know this or who lives in the US or who doesn't, but Florida is actually ranked last in all of America for mental health spending per capita. Wow. So, I mean, that's like, I mean, bottom of the bottom of the bottom, we're below the territories like American territories in mental health spending. So they said, if you think that you can actually run this as a nonprofit, I challenge you to do the math on where the money would come from, whether that money would come consistently, and how many people you genuinely believe you can get to work for you for free, because that's what's going to have to happen. And when I thought about it, I, I thought about all the nonprofits that I had served that had closed because they couldn't get donations. Right. And right. I was like, I can't set this up for failure. Like if we want to impact millions of people, we can't rely on rich people to send us money when they feel like sending it to us for a tax break. Like we need to provide value and get paid in real time or else this will fail. I mean, this, this really, this really opens up a broader conversation and I'll try to be uh, quick with a, a, lot, a couple more questions here. And one is that I think there's sort of a time, maybe hopefully now we're maybe in it for like a revolution within nonprofits as far as like modernizing them, whether it's a strategic standpoint or actually talking to the states or whoever to try to figure out a way to um, legally have a different type of entity or something, because I just think, and you know probably better than I do, right? It seems like there's such a stagnation with nonprofits that they're, they, like you said, they can't innovate, right? They're trying to solve some of the hardest problems that we face in our country and in our world, and they can't really move at the pace that a startup can, right? So I guess looking at people who are coming up, maybe that, that want to do something and are, are, are facing that same decision you made, right? Would you ever tell them to start a nonprofit, right? Or would you be like, no, just start it as a business and go from there? Well, I'm always hesitant to give advice around, like, obviously that's kind of a legal and financial decision. Yeah. But I would say from a purely strategy standpoint, dude, Cope Notes has made like a monumental change to what we do 
like three times a week for the last three years. <laughs> Cope Notes is 500 times the resource that it was when we started. And our product roadmap is riddled with the coolest, most amazing, innovative new features that I've ever dreamed up. And whose permission do we have to ask to implement these, to test them, to roll them out? Do we have to ask donors? Do we have to amass volunteers? Do we have to submit minutes to the IRS and get 12 rich people in the same room to, to literally eat crackers and ignore what we're talking about? Uh, that might sound like a that might sound like a gross overgeneralization of what nonprofits do, but I will tell you this. I've met a lot of businesses and a lot of nonprofits. And even if they all mean well, I've had three year long conversations with nonprofits that have amounted to nothing. And it is not because they don't want to do their jobs. It's because they can't. The yep. minutiae and bureaucracy, it's like a web. It's like quicksand. They get sucked into it. And if a startup wants to do something, they freaking do it. Yep. And that mobility, especially if you are serving people, I want to be clear about this. If what you're trying to do is to make you look cool, do a nonprofit because you will look super cool. I promise you. And I'm not saying that people start nonprofits for this. I'm saying if that's why you want to start a nonprofit, mm -hmm. then go for it. But if you want to be able to serve people as quickly and effectively and innovatively, if that's a word, as possible, I encourage you to rethink the nonprofit route because you need to be mobile if your work is affecting the lives of other people. I want to touch on one more thing you said before before I ask you the last question, but it would be going back to what you said about Florida and um, the allocation of, of money towards mental health and being the lowest in, in the United States. Have you had conversations at all with, with you know, any government leaders, whether it be locally or statewide or even at a federal level of just the the idea that 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 is a thing right that, that florida is dead last right and not and not looking this at this as you know obviously we're seeing a, a physical pandemic you know take over you know the world right now and, and we could physically see the issues that that has right but mental health is is it seems to be a pandemic across the country and, and across the world that you know has has riped families and people for for decades now yet the money is not invested in that right like it that like there is in, in sort of physical pandemics but mental pandemics are, are are just kind of shunned a little bit right as far as like allocation of capital and, and political will have you had any conversations i guess just within florida about like taking this shit a bit more seriously dude i'm picturing um you know when the world was opened up still mm -hmm. Uh, when we were on tour, you know, sometimes I'd be at the merch table and like signing stuff for people and selling stuff. And, you know, if someone would come up and be like, hey, great show. And they're wearing like Chanel sunglasses and they have a Gucci bag and they're drinking like a $15 martini. And they're like, yeah, you were the greatest band here. And I'm like, you know, it'd be, you know, if you want to listen to us at home, you should buy a CD. I mean, it's only 10 bucks. And they're like, oh, I don't have money for that. Mm. And I'm like, freaking yeah. what? are you talking about? Like, look at you, your drink costs more than the CD and you came to a concert for music. Like, mm -hmm. and I would just be so perplexed. I feel like that's what the American government does. Mm. They're like, oh, we need more nukes, but we don't have money for water for Flint <laughs> or we don't have money for foster right. children or the homeless community. We don't have water. We don't have money for veterans. It's like, what are you freaking talking yeah. about? You don't have money. That's because of the way you spend it. So mm -hmm. Code Notes just started working with governments last year, and 
um, we are continuing that work into this year and we're trying to not only leverage those opportunities to serve the community, but also leverage them as a talking point in the government realm to say, hey, what does it tell you that governments are contracting with a digital mental health provider and having to use their own money for it? It's because you didn't give them money for it. Like we suffice it to say, you know, I don't see myself going into politics, but I do see myself leveraging these relationships that we are building with governments to open up a broader national conversation about how we allocate resources mm -hmm. and how high of a priority mental health should be. It's such a, it's such a great point. It's the, it's, it's the thing that doesn't get talked about the most is how important the allocation of money is, right? Like you said, we have enough to solve a, a lot of really, really tough issues. You know, the problem is our, our allocation of capital for the last 50 years has been just god awful and the amount of money wasted. Could you imagine if you had the right people, yeah. right? And the right, and, and going to the right ideas, like it, I mean, a lot of the stuff would just be, you know, almost wiped out, you know, it would be solved. But I digress a little bit because I, I think I think you made I think we both made the points we wanted to make. <laughs> the the last question I have is is sort of a little bit about the future and what success like looks like to you, right? When you look maybe three years, five years down the line, what what do you what is success for you for Cope Notes, right? Is it is it hitting a certain number of people affected? Is it is it having a certain number of clients? Like like what are success metrics, right, for you from like an impacting live standpoint? So on our website, if you scroll a little bit down the header, um, a little bit past that, like above the fold section, yep. you will see three metrics. And that is how we measure success both internally and externally. So there's a number that shows how many texts we have exchanged with our users, which means how many individual times we have made an impact on somebody's life. And that's our true north. Right next to that is the number of countries reached. That's the number of the number, so we have users in that many countries around the world. So that's our geographical reach. And then the third is lives impacted. And that is the total number of people that have interacted with Cope Notes via text message. So right now, those numbers are, drum roll please. Those numbers are 603,702 603, texts exchanged, 93 countries reached, and 16,505 lives impacted. All I want to do is see those numbers go up. That's it. You can take, you know, I know people are like, well, you need to look at quarter over quarter revenue and you need to look at churn. And yes, of course, yeah. all of those things are important. <laughs> but when I feel discouraged, I pull up our website mm -hmm. and I watch that odometer kick up those most recent numbers. And I think, oh, do I really want to quit? Or are there 16,505 mm -hmm. people in 93 countries right now, depending on me to keep going? Amazing. It's so awesome, my man. Like, I, I really appreciate the time. Um, I appreciate not quitting. I, you know, I appreciate you learning along the way. I, I just appreciate all the effort that has gone in to build this and to continue to build this and continuing to, to spread the message uh, as you do. So best of luck the rest of this year and you know for the decades to come, my man. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, brother.